Cars are blocked from the place now known as George Floyd Square. It makes an effective memorial. Posters advise visitors on the proper behaviour, like signs outside a church forbidding shorts and flash photography. An arts centre has become a museum of protest signs. White plastic headstones marked with the names of African Americans killed by the police stand in a nearby park. The neighbourhood is a rare racial patchwork, and Minneapolis is an unlikely avatar of American racism. But number crunching by the economist Raj Chetty and his colleagues at Harvard University reveals persistent segregation. Black boys born around George Floyd Square 30 years ago would grow up to live in households with an average annual income of just $17,000. One in 10 would spend time in prison. Derek Chauvin, the policeman who killed Floyd, grew up in Cottage Grove, a suburb 20 miles away. It's a place of detached bungalows with public driveways connected by shared lawns. It's not rich, but a boy born there 30 years ago could expect to grow up in a household with an annual income nearly three times higher. And it's 85% white. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prudeau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is America irredeemably racist? The idea that racism is systemic and resistant to the laws designed to end it originated in academia a generation ago. It's become more mainstream since the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests that followed. Now Republican legislators want to prevent it from being toured. How helpful is this way of thinking about race in America? In this episode, we'll assess how the debate on race is changing with historian Yuhuri Williams, find out how the once fringe area of legal scholarship known as critical race theory was thrust into the culture wars, and speak to Kimberly Crenshaw, one of its leading scholars. With me to discuss all of this is John Fasman, the US digital editor, and standing in for Charlotte, who's going to have a baby soon, is Idris Kaloon, our Washington correspondent, who's actually in Portland at the moment on holiday. Idris, how's Portland? Uh, yeah, it's got its charms. It's still also very much still hasn't recovered from all the protests that have been going on for about a year now. So it's it's an interesting place to to see the sights. Yeah, you sent me a photo of the Apple shop, which is still boarded up and seems to have turned its large glass window at the front into an, an which was clearly smashed up into an area for public art. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of public art. There's a lot of dystopian fencing and, and plywood going around that uh, the art tries to mitigate, but doesn't quite uh, fully do its job. And Fasman, how are you doing? What's happening in, in your bit of New York? This afternoon, I'm going to take a train and the subway for the first time in 15 months. And if you had ever told me that I would be looking forward to getting on a Metro North train, I would have said you're nuts. But honestly, I can't wait. Are you just going to go around in circles for the thrill of the thing? Or are you actually going to go from A to B? I'm not going to ride around in circles. We have a meeting with the New York Bureau where we will probably discuss, among other things, your outstanding special report that just came out this week. Oh, that's kind of you. Thank you. Yes, last month, I made it to Minneapolis to do some reporting for a long piece on race in America, which you can read in this week's issue, along with a cover leader. I wanted to find out what's changed since George Floyd was murdered there a year ago. And one of the people I spoke to while I was there 
was Yuhuru Williams, who's a historian and director of the Racial Justice Initiative at the University of St. Thomas. I think the biggest change has been a sense of immediacy in terms of conversations about what to do with regard to dismantling systemic racism. And I think that grew out of the murder of George Floyd and um, this reaction that people had, this kind of visceral reaction to the murder. And then this desire to do something to prevent that from ever happening again. It's operated on a couple of different levels. You certainly have had community activists who've been on the streets, who've maintained pressure on public officials not to lose sight of the larger questions here associated with police brutality. But you also have corporations, universities, other institutions that are looking for ways to really tackle racial inequality and to do so in a way where it is tied to the legacy of what happened last May. How, over the past year, um, has the way that students talk about race and racism in America changed, do you think? This generation of young people are very much committed to seeing this problem dealt with in their lifetime. You can see that in the program of Black Lives Matter. You can see that in the rhetoric that they use. You can see that in the blueprints um, that they offer for dealing with police accountability, even moving beyond questions of reform and talking about literally um, defund the police, which is destabilizing to so many people when they hear that language. But if you really kind of dig into what these activists are saying, they're actually making the case that we've tried reform in the past. And the reason that it has proved wholly inadequate is that it doesn't go far enough in addressing the root foundational causes of this, which have their ties in white supremacy and the history of racial subjugation in the United States. And that's a hard pill for a lot of people to to, uh, swallow. But I find young people receptive to those ideas for the most part and interested in continuing the conversation at that level. Um, I think they're asking larger questions about systems and how you dismantle systems of inequality and systems of oppression. And when we're talking about those system questions and racial disparities in, in income, in wealth, in health, in the way people are policed and so on, do you think people get the balance right between history and systemic problems that are you know, inherited from previous generations and between contemporary things like unconscious bias? Because it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, that often there's an assumption that if you fix unconscious bias and you fix racial attitudes now, then the problem will go away. Whereas actually, it seems to me that diagnosis gets things backwards. You would treat the symptoms, but not the underlying disease. That's the danger in focusing on things like unconscious bias. Um, Not that these aren't important conversations to have. Taking a hard look at the historical roots of how we got here is a much harder ask, but an important ask. We see that in policing. So, for example, you know, I share with people the Minneapolis police force was formed in in 1867. The modern police force in most communities dates back to the Civil War and owes in large part to the creation of slave patrols. So policing in and of itself has ties and roots in slave capture. That's important for people to understand. We've got to deal with that underlying layer in order to really talk about making change. Idris, Yuhuru mentioned there this idea of structural racism, and there's a lot of debate in America among journalists, politicians, academics about structural racism. How helpful an idea do you think it is? 
and what do you understand it to mean? I guess I'll start with what I understand it to mean, which is the idea that American institutions, be they the government, the law, uh, corporations, the media, all have within them embedded the means by which disparities continue. So that these disparities are not between blacks and whites, principally, is what we typically are discussing, or between uh, men and women, sometimes also are not the result of sort of accidents of history, but instead the deliberate choice in the way that these institutions were set up. I think that there is some truth to that analysis, particularly when we're looking at the way that America was organized in the past, even 50 or 60 years ago, certainly at the time of the founding, when embedded within the Constitution, right, are explicit, three explicit references to slavery itself, the most famous of which being that, um, you know, for the purposes of representation, black people would only count for three fifths of, of a person, but for no other, you know, no other point would they count as, as citizens in America. As far as your second question of whether or not it's helpful, I think it's always important to be conscious of the ways in which systems might be through inertia reinforcing the existing disparities that exist. But I think that you also have to think about the other things that are going on. You have to think about the forces that are not embedded within systems themselves, but are the results of, you know, exposure to concentrated poverty or exposure to um, violence and the disruptions of trade and many sorts of disruptions that are happening that are in some complicated way, the result of this history of systemic discrimination. But you know, in the present day and in the present day analysis is the only thing to focus on the systems and, and dismantling of systems, which is really something that Yahuru brought up and, and that is a common refrain. I think it can be less than clarifying. And, and there are other things that also should be thought about. John, same question to you. I mean, structural racism comes up a lot in discussions of policing in America, which is a special subject of yours. How helpful do you think the idea is and what do you take it to mean? A simpler way to think about it might be racism without racist, right? So if you think about, you know, for instance, home values and how the values of homes are, are, are much less in majority African-American than majority white neighborhoods, that's not because real estate assessors and people who are looking for houses are all bigots themselves. It's because there has been a series of policies set up that perpetuate racist outcomes. That's what I understand structural racism to mean, how systems work to perpetuate outcomes. I think it's helpful to look at, if you are trying to sort of blunt the longstanding effects of slavery and segregation, it's helpful to look at outcomes rather than the intent of the people in the systems. I think that's what a focus on structural racism sort of helps you do. I think one of the problems inherent in this, and Idris brought this up very well, is that there's a temptation to focus on systems and not policy, and to sort of backread an intent into a system, instead of just focusing on things that will make lives better for people in concentrated poverty, for people who are racial minorities. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that a lot of these discussions hinge on disparities and discrimination and to what extent you can attribute disparities to discrimination. And sometimes that, that is part of it, but I'll give you an example, which is that um, in schools in America, black students are three times as likely to be suspended as white students. And for some people, the analysis ends there, and the systemic racism is embedded in the educational system, and there are a bunch of racist teachers, and you know we need to do training and, and get rid of that. 
Um, it's also true in America that boys are suspended at three times the rate as girls. And I think that if you told those same people that and told them to tell a story about it, they might say, well, what are the actual rates of misbehavior? Are boys primed more to do this? You know, does it improve with, with kids? You know, there would be a search for evidence as opposed to just ending the analysis at the at the 3x disparity, which I think is a mode of analysis that is missing sometimes in, in the people who most strenuously advocate for systemic racism. And I don't know if that example makes it any clearer, but to, in my mind, you know, as certainly someone who, you know, a- anyone who's trained in social sciences is taught to think about confounding factors and what else might be going on. And once you've accounted for those things to then be able to attribute what's left over to race and the effect of race. And there is stuff, right? There is stuff that's left over. It's not to say that this stuff is, has gone away, but that's, again, maybe an abstract discussion, but I think where a lot of this hinges. Yeah, I agree with both of you on this. I mean, to the extent to which structural racism is a fancy way of saying history matters, I completely on board with it. I mean, when I was doing my reporting in Minneapolis recently, Minneapolis, like pretty much every other big northern city in America, the African-American communities are where they are because when the folks you know, moved there um, as part of the Great Migration from, from the South to escape Jim Crow and in search of jobs in the early part of the 20th century, there were very specific areas that they were allowed to live in. And those areas were you know, reinforced with redlining, racial covenants, all the rest of it. And several generations later, lo and behold, African-Americans remain concentrated in those same areas, many of which are now areas of kind of concentrated poverty. So, so history matters, right? My concern with structural racism as a term is, is almost a kind of political one um, in that it suggests a certain kind of hopelessness because changing structure just sounds really, really hard. And I worry about the degree to which it lets individuals off the hook for um, their own bad behavior, frankly. So uh, policing is a good example of this. Take Derek Chauvin. I mean, you could, you know, if you were to push the structural racism analogy really far, you'd say, well, Chauvin was operating within a structurally racist framework or organization in, in the police department. And to me, that would diminish the individual responsibility that he bears for that awful murder. So those would be my concerns. I just think if you, I think it's useful, but if you push it too far, it becomes unhelpful, both both politically and analytically, if you like. Yeah, I think the trick when analyzing structural racism is to focus on what policies can be changed to achieve an outcome that we want. And I agree the term connote, the term could sort of drive a certain level of fatalism toward the country. It, it could promote the notion that America is, does not just have to deal with the long legacy of slavery and segregation, but that it is hopeless to even try to do so. And I don't, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I think also it can lead you to the wrong conclusion. For example, there there is no, to my knowledge, developed country in the world that lacks a, a police force. And if you take the argument, as some people have quite seriously, that, and this was hinted at, right, the origins of policing in America are so indelibly intertwined with slavery that the entire enterprise is legitimate, and really we might be better off without it entirely. I mean, Certainly history matters, right? Certainly people should be aware of, of that fact, just as they should be aware of redlining. I think more people are. But the idea that the solution out of this is to dismantle the police departments, uh, abolish prisons, and convert all privately owned housing to public housing, yes, those dismantle structures. I don't think that they would be great for the country, though. 
Um, and indeed, I don't think there is actually any any place that that attempts anything of that sort, really. So that's also the the danger sometimes, I think, of, of taking the analogy too far, um, just in another direction. And propounding those beliefs often drains support from actual achievable reforms, right? We don't, I would say we don't need to dismantle the police, we need to train them better and perhaps have better use of force policies. Those are small changes with large effects. But it's not as much fun to argue for them, perhaps, as it is to say, tear it all down. Yeah, yeah. And I, I worry that we've gone into the space where within sort of activist circles, something like what John just said would be dismissed as sus- suspiciously mild-mannered. My business cards do say suspiciously mild-mannered. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay, thank you both. We'll go back to the Obama years in a moment to find out how critical race theory came to be thrust into the culture wars in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. As well as my special report, there's a suspiciously mild-mannered column on Joe Biden and Benjamin Netanyahu and a thoughtful piece about parents and the pandemic around the world. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. He hasn't done it simply because of the excellence of his scholarship. Although his scholarship has opened up new vistas and new horizons and changed the standards of what legal writing is about. In 1990, Boston TV station WGBH captured the easy intonation of a young Harvard law student whose knack for public speaking would one day catapult him to the presidency. Open up your hearts and your minds to the words of Professor Derek Bell. The camera crew was there to report on a campus kerfuffle. I appreciate Barack's kind words, but it was not me that made all of this possible. Professor Bell was stepping down in protest at the lack of African-Americans on the faculty. The faculty at Harvard Law, the oldest existing, most prestigious, and in the view of many, the best law school in the United States, was all white and all male. That is a horrible history, not remediable by plaintive pleas of mea culpa, combined with the token appointment of members of the victim class who are least likely to remind the school of its past racist hiring record. Bell was one of only three black professors at the time. None were women. Unfortunately, those minorities most likely to have these skills are often not attractive to those who believe that a law faculty hired using the standards of the 1950s should serve the needs of the 1990s. That video resurfaced on a right-wing website during Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. By using the president's ties to a radical academic against him, Obama's opponents were hoping for a repeat of the scandal that almost upset his historic campaign four years before. On that occasion, a video surfaced of Jeremiah Wright, Obama's Chicago pastor, sermonizing on the racist crimes of the U.S. government.
The remarks that have caused this recent firestorm weren't simply controversial. They weren't simply a religious leader's efforts to speak out against perceived injustice. Instead, they expressed a profoundly distorted view of this country, a view that sees white racism as endemic, and that elevates what is wrong with America above all that we know is right with America. The scandal prompted Obama's only major speech on race during the 2008 campaign. He denounced the words of the man who had baptized his children. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society. It's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made, as if this country, a country that has made it possible for one of his own members to run for the highest office in the land and build a coalition of white and black, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, young and old, is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. The speech was also a repudiation of the teachings of Derek Bell. For Bell, racism was endemic, a feature, not a bug fixed by legislation. Bell argued in his seminal book, Race, Racism and American Law, that civil rights expanded only when it was in the interests of the white elite. And the top-down reforms of the 50s and 60s had left poor whites feeling betrayed and resentful to blacks as the beneficiaries of that betrayal. I actually encountered the book when I was an undergrad. It was why I wanted to go to Harvard, because that's where Derrick Bell was. You asked me what I wanted to do. I want to go to Harvard Law School. I want to study with Derrick Bell. Kimberly Crenshaw joined campus strikes and ran alternative law courses for students of color in the 1990s. She later became a celebrated law professor herself and built on Bell's work. For him, the racially disparate consequences of legal rulemaking was the point of the study. He was going to decode these ways that law functioned to create race, not just as a neutral referee, and, and allow us to assess whether this was consistent with American notions of justice. So when I saw that, I was like, this is the guy. But when I got to Harvard Law School, the guy wasn't there. As they said, Elvis had left the building and nobody told us. So some part of, of critical race theory was trying to create for ourselves as students what we thought we were going to be learning under the tutelage of Derrick Bell. In making Derrick Bell headline news again in 2012, Obama's opponents thrust critical race theory onto the partisan battlefield. There's an irony in how much their arguments echo Bell's. In insisting that politics can't be separated from biography, conservatives adopted the tactics of the anti-racist left. Preferring dramatic narrative to empirical analysis was also one of Bell's innovations. After he quit Harvard, Bell published a sci-fi satire about an alien visitation. The extraterrestrials offered to pay off America's debt and solve the environmental crisis. In exchange, they proposed removing the African-American population. It's a tale dripping with cynicism about race in America, the antithesis of a speech by Barack Obama. John, I think you heard there, there's a fundamental tension in the critical race 
theory view of race in America, which I think is a pretty pessimistic one in that it emphasizes the continuities between the present and the past very much in a way that can make it sound like America's still trapped in the Jim Crow era. And the Barack Obama view, which is, yes, there is racism in America, but it's not as bad as it used to be, and the arc of history bends towards justice, etc. When I was writing my special report, I found this balance incredibly hard to get right. You know, a lot of writers who I really admire on race in America, like Du Bois and James Baldwin, you know, go from being quite optimistic about possibilities for change to, towards the end of their lives, being much more pessimistic and kind of emphasizing the impossibility of making progress. Uh, temperamentally, I like, I think, you and Idris are somewhat more inclined towards optimism. And I also think, actually, the, the data is on that side. And uh, to paraphrase Obama, if you think there's been no racial progress in America, then go and find an African-American who grew up under Jim Crow and, and ask them about it. How do you try to get that balance between gloom and optimism right in your thinking and your writing about this? I think, as you said, much of the data provides cause for optimism. But optimism is also kind of a hard sell, I think, for a couple of reasons. It's really hard to tell someone whose son or husband was just shot by the police, you know, I'm sorry about what happened, but don't worry, things are getting better. You know, you can be optimistic in the long term. So, you know, there's a question of who, who sort of pays the price for people maintaining optimism. The other reason is that Obama came into office in 2008 after a pretty disastrous presidency. And so there was reason to believe things were getting better and would get better. I think one reason the more pessimistic view of American race relations is ascendant now is because of what we've lived through for the last four years, right? After Obama, you had a president who was openly nativist, who campaigned on and exploited racial grievance and who won, and who nearly won again, and you have a party that has fallen in line behind that grievance. Now, you know, I think there are probably plenty of elected Republicans who would be happy to leave that behind, but that's not how the incentives have lined up. And so if you look at the incentives as they are now, that provides good reason for pessimism. I think the more difficult question is how we return to a more optimistic view of America and of race relations in America. And on that, I just don't have an answer. So I, I think two things have happened. One, very clearly, there has been progress in the last 50, 100 years. But there's also been declining tolerance for the existence of, of these gaps. And both those things, I think, combine to give this atmosphere where you have the sort of question of, well, if things are getting better, then how come America feels as divided on race as it ever has been? I think that's one thing that's happened. The other is is the polarization within the parties around the issue of race, not necessarily just by members, but the fact that to be a Democrat in America, a white Democrat, is to think quite critically about race, to think that um, a lot of disparities are the result of systemic racism and to think less highly of your own, of whites themselves. And after Trump's four years of white identity politics, and indeed the same that's gripped the Republican Party today, there's no reason to think that that's going to change for the Republican Party either. I think all of those things together help at least address the seeming paradox of, of why there's so much consciousness about this and why things seem to not be moving, even though if you look at some objective measures, you know, 
black life expectancy. I know you, you talk about, you know, tolerance for interracial marriage and, and mixed race couples and all the rest, things that have improved all the same. You still see an immense amount of grievance and, and anger around these issues. And I think that's how you at least try to resolve them. Yeah, I still find it extraordinary that at the beginning of Bill Clinton's presidency, more than half of Americans told Gallup that they were opposed to mixed race marriage. And that poll question hasn't been asked very recently, because basically now everyone's in favor, right? So that's quite a big change in the space of 30 years. But John, something strange is going on at the moment in state legislatures, where you have Republican majorities trying to pass bills essentially essentially institutionalizing the optimistic version of racial progress in America. These bills taking aim at critical race theory, I think the one in West Virginia I was reading recently tries to ban the teaching of divisive concepts in schools in, in the states. Now, it's not clear that any of this stuff is constitutional. And I, in fact, the people pushing those bills may be after a kind of culture fight uh, rather than actually changing the law, and it could work quite well for them. But that's a pretty extraordinary development too, right? Yeah, there's a bill in Idaho that banned the teaching of critical race theory because it made kids feel bad. Well, history is often not comforting. And as as I think Yohuru said in the opening segment, it's really not critical race theory that they're after, but but sort of critical thinking about America's racial past. And this isn't new either, right? W.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction in America and the Souls of Black Folk wrote about how America needs a history that makes it feel good about itself. And that's what they're trying to institutionalize. I agree that these bills probably are not constitutional. They will run into a giant buzzsaw that is the First Amendment. But I also think you're, you're probably right that what the proponents want is less to institutionalize these bills in law than to have the fight over culture, which I think they think they can win because they are promoting an optimistic, if rosy-hued, if not false view of American history. And there's a tremendous market for that. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to hear a bit more about critical race theory from Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw is a leading authority on critical race theory, professor of law at UCLA and Columbia, and founder of the African American Policy Forum. John Fassman spoke to her for the brilliant Christmas episode that he put together on Reconstruction. Make sure you go back and listen to that if you haven't already. She kindly agreed to come back on the podcast because I wanted to ask her how it feels to have your life's work pulled apart in the partisan tug of war. Whatever is called the popularization of critical race theory really isn't critical race theory. Ask many of these state legislators, what is this thing that suddenly you have discovered that is a threat to Western civilization? And they really couldn't tell you. So for the most part, this is not an engagement with critical race theory. So if you ask me what it's like to, to see its popularization, it, it's like, okay, what is it like to see lies about the election? And the short of it is it's 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 horrible, right? It's really, you know, shocking. And at the same time, the mainstream media and I I would say, you know, the arena that we're in right now have not thought it important to broaden and deepen their own understanding 
of race and racial power. So for the most part, you know, the understanding about what racism is, isn't that distinct from the right to the center to even the left. So there's been an abandonment of any serious consideration of whether a post-slave society and a post-genocidal society is the same society as one that never had those problems. This is, I think, you know, the existential question about our societies. And most thought leaders, left, center, right, are really not prepared to have a very intelligent conversation about that. So when those who are trying to deal with that are talking about it, and the right wing decides to use the frame to attach itself to something that Trump has done from the beginning, weaponize racial anxiety into a winning strategy, they are now occupying unoccupied terrain, right? A vacuum. And I think this is the the real question. The right's going to do what the right's going to do. The question is, what's the center progressive population going to do about it? Sometimes seems to me reading critical race theory that there's this important strand which is looking back at Reconstruction, looking back at the 1960s and seeing the commonalities between then and now, which seems you know exactly right and you know good historical practice, but can also I think sometimes give the impression that. If you look back at American history, it's just the same old stuff again and again and again, and nothing really ever gets better. How do you get that balance between sort of optimism and pessimism? How, how do you calibrate that in, in your thinking? I mean, do you, I suppose a shorter way of asking the question is kind of, do you believe in, in progress in this area? So, John, I, I have to say one of the challenges in responding to do things never get better is is just some degree of frustration with the fact that if you read any of us, we never say that things don't get better. That's a frame that has been projected on our work. I will say that the first article that I ever wrote, like 1988, I'm dating myself here, it was called Race Reform and Retrenchment. And what I argue there is that There are moments of reform that actually change the point of departure, but they change the point of departure in contradictory ways. So what happened when white-only signs were brought down across society? Did that change things? Of course it did, right? I exist as a law professor at two universities because of the hard work that happen to remove formal racial barriers because of um, the courageous work of students who said it's not enough, you know, just to pack us into, you know, these few seats, but we want to learn different things. So of course things get better, but transformation is not a forward ever progressive arc in history. Just go to Reconstruction to answer that question, right? We we had more representatives in the Senate 
in the aftermath of the Civil War than we had when Barack Obama was elected to the Senate. I mean, and when Barack Obama left the Senate for the White House, we had exactly the same number as we had in the aftermath of Reconstruction. So we have to be able to account for ebbs and flows. How do we hold on to the progress that we've made and not turn that into a wide system of denial to say that these problems aren't going to keep coming back in different ways. It is like Friday the 13th. Whatever that monster is called, I don't remember if it was Jason or Michael or whoever, they always are buried in a shallow grave. It takes hard work. It takes the willingness not to dissemble in the face of the truth about our history. And it takes being aware of the moments when we might be sliding back resisting censorship of these ideas, resisting the idea that we're too weak to confront our past, and knowing that if we cannot name the the problems we're trying to solve, we're not going to inherit that country that we think we have a right to be. Idris, Kimberly Crenshaw talked about the popularization of critical race theory, or at least a caricature of critical race theory, on the part of Republicans in state legislatures who are passing laws against it. But there's also been a popularization from the left, right? Uh, people like Ibram Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, both of whom have written best-selling popularized versions of, of critical race theory. What do you think gets lost when these ideas that originated in Harvard uh, at the law school in the in the 1980s and 1990s uh, make it to the top of the bestseller list. I agree with her that the woke bestsellers that we're all familiar with are very different from the ideas that were being debated in the academy that they, they set out. I mean, one of her lasting contributions was to point out that in cases of gender discrimination, I believe at an auto plant, that the law ought to take into account that, that women might be doubly discriminated against black women might because of their race. And I thought that that was a perfectly well-made point, the, the kind of point that is so obvious that upon reading it, you think, why hasn't this already been done? And the the popularizers are, are operating in a different sphere, which is, you know, not entirely about the law or courts or, or, or anything else. But Ibram Kendi's basic view is that every action can be distilled into, in true Monacan fashion, into either being racist or anti-racist. And Robin D'Angelo has this idea that whiteness is, is in some way analogous to original sin, and that the only way of expiation is to sort of go through a constant cycle of, of self-denial and public self-denial. As you can tell, I'm not great fans of, of either of those books, but I have a lot more respect for, for the points that were made by, by critical race theorists at least in, in their critique of, of the law and the way that, that law was taught. I, I did think that uh, Professor Crenshaw's answer, I have enormous respect for her about pessimism and optimism, I think underplayed the, the, the pessimism that I, I see in, in critical race theory when you read it. I have, there's a bit from Derek Bell that I, I thought was good that I, I highlighted before this episode, but it's maybe long, but I'll read it anyway. Um, I'm convinced that there is something real out there in America for black people. It is not, however, the romantic love of integration. It is surely not the long-sought goal of equality under law, though we must maintain the struggle against racism, else the erosion of black rights will become even worse than it is now. Um, yeah, that's, there's some optimism, but it's mostly quite grim. 
John, as part of our efforts to examine race and racism in America a year after George Floyd's murder, we've got the special report which I wrote this week. There are also a series of by invitation articles which you've been commissioning and editing. And I thought this might be a good place to bring up one of them in particular by John McWhorter, who's a vociferous critic of self-styled anti-racists uh, in, in America and would certainly would find a lot to disagree with um, folks like Ibrahim Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, maybe a bit less with the original critical race theorists. I think he might be a bit more sympathetic to them, but I think still would have some some differences. Can, can you tell us a bit more about his views and about, about this controversy? Yeah, I don't think that McWhorter is an opponent of critical race theory as it originally functioned, right? As it originally functioned as a as a way to sort of figure out why and how racism persisted despite at least nominal legal equality. I don't think anyone who thinks seriously about race has has a problem with that line of inquiry. I think where he comes down is that, you know, self-styled progressive activists spend far too much time worrying about whether people use the right phraseology and far too little time pushing for policies that would actually benefit the majority of African Americans. I think about this in the in the neighborhood where I stay in Washington, D.C. Northwest D.C. is full of, you know, good liberals who no doubt have, you know, an NPR tote bag for every day of the week and saw Nomadland and IMAX and are happy to stick a Black Lives Matter poster in their, in their front yard, but who vociferously oppose the sort of zoning reform that D.C. needs to make it a more affordable city for the people who work there, especially the working class men and women who keep the city functioning. So I think it's that kind of paradox that that McWhorter dr- really drills down on, the idea that you can sort of fix your own feelings and call out everybody else, and that is some sort of useful anti-racist action. That's what he opposes, and that's what he's written about for us. Should we stick for a moment on this theme of what does actually work? The problem that I think public policy can get to work on here are these long-standing disparities in employment, in education, in income, and in wealth. There's this paradox in America, which is that African-Americans on on many of those measures actually made a lot of progress in the first half of the 20th century and have made almost no progress relative to whites in the decades since the passage of the Civil Rights Act. You'd kind of think it would be the opposite, right? These are very, very stubborn racial gaps. Idris, this week you've been writing in The Economist about the expansion of the safety net in America. So what works if you're interested in narrowing those gaps? Yeah, so there's there's a lot that you could be doing to to address the persistence of of gaps in income and uh, wealth and education. Anti poverty policy is also, I think, you could say, anti racist policy. Among the things that Joe Biden has proposed is a extension of the child tax credit, which would nearly half child poverty on its own do more for African American and Hispanic children. Lots of these sort of welfare state benefits that would go to the middle class would obviously accrue most highly for African Americans and Hispanics and do, I think, a terribly a uh, lot of good for them. A lot of the time, the way that these discussions go is the only policy remedy that they end up discussing is, is affirmative action and whether or not that's a good strategy of, of dealing with these things. And indeed, a lot of the critical race theory literature was on espousing and, 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 and defending uh, affirmative action and, and its merits. And I, I think that that misses the point in some sense, because what we're talking about when we're talking about affirmative action is access principally to elite institutions, which go to the benefit of 
the elites within the minority. And while that might have symbolic importance, you know, there's a weird theory of trickle down that you have to have when you advance affirmative action arguments that I think is is nebulous, it's unpopular, and I think is is a distraction compared to the other stuff that I've just laid out, which I think the effects are pretty uncontroversial. You can model them out pretty easily. And they immediately go to the typical kid. To me, it feels like a more serious policy proposal. And John, those race-neutral anti-poverty policies can be really effective at narrowing racial disparities, as Idris has described there. And also, they have huge political upside, right, in that they are less likely to set off a backlash from white voters. I think you're absolutely right that race-neutral policies are more politically feasible than overtly race-conscious ones like affirmative action. I think you can see that in a way that affirmative action has been sort of sort of whittled down. Whether that means that they are the best way of narrowing outcome gaps between African-Americans and whites is another question, but they certainly are more politically feasible. Well, if you found this podcast interesting, there's a lot more on race in America one year on from George Floyd's death in this week's Economist. George Floyd's on the cover. Do check all of that out. Before I let you go, it's quiz time. And Idris, I need to warn you that Fasman has been on a roll recently. So, so take a deep breath and a swig of coffee. The Economist first tackled racism in April 1892. The paper raised concerns about American proposals to ban immigrant labourers from China, but not Italy, because of race prejudice. That phrase returned in a 1955 article assessing US soft power, which we also write about in this week's issue. Quote, Servicemen have established beachheads for Coca-Cola, American dancing, cigarettes and slang, we wrote. Which touring opera with an African-American cast, was helping to dispel exaggerated ideas of race prejudice in the United States. Porgy and Bess? Idris, I warned you, that's, Porgy and Bess is indeed correct. Yeah, no, I mean, 50s opera. <laughs> 50s opera with an African-American cast. Some great tunes as well. Okay. Controversial in the US, a caste protest forced Washington's National Theatre to desegregate the audience for the first time. The show went down a storm abroad. The same 1955 piece on soft power noted Parisians' delight at an onomatopoeic undulating toy made of steel in wartime Philadelphia. Can you name it? A yo-yo? A slinky? It was a slinky. How is that onomatopoeic, though? It sort of slinks. It doesn't sound like slink. Well, it's sort of onomatopoeic in a way because it sort of goes sk, sk, sk down the stairs. So, Fasman, that's a that's a point to you as well. Idris, you're going to have to get your head in the uh, in the trivia books while you're driving around Oregon. Yeah, yeah, I will, I will. The slinky was developed by naval engineer Richard James. He was designing springs to stabilize sensitive instruments in rough seas when one of them fell off his workbench and flipped over itself and down some steps. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you, Idris, for taking time out of your vacation. Thank you, John. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thanks also to John Shields and Nico Rofast for producing the podcast. If you like it, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. Thanks to everyone who sent warm wishes to Charlotte for her maternity leave. Our address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. 
We'll have more checks and balance next week. 